Thanks, Ryan. Good morning. Hey, so good to see you. Go ahead and open up your Bible to Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28. That's where we're going to be for this morning. And as you're turning there, just uh, want to speak briefly to uh, some touchy topics that are kind of going on in our country today. Uh, if you've been following the news this week, maybe you have uh, seen kind of the, the mess that's uh, on display before us with the uh, Senate hearings with the Supreme Court nominee, Judge Kavanaugh, and the accusations against him Dr. Ford uh, has brought. And um, anyway, I know it's a, a touchy subject, and so it's not my desire now to comment on that political situation and jump into that mess and tell you how you should think exactly about that. That's not my goal. But I, uh, as it's come up in conversations I've had and, and things that I've seen from friends of mine on social media and uh, the things that people have been through, I've realized that it's stirring in a lot of people a certain question. And it's for those who have experienced abuse, whether it's sexual abuse, sexual assault, rape of some kind, uh, this has been a really difficult thing to watch. And, and those people are asking the question, uh, if I come forward with my story of what's happened to me, will, will anyone believe me? Will, will I be taken seriously? Um, and they're looking to, to leaders and to, to pastors and to Christians and wondering how will uh, those people in my life respond? And so again, it's not my desire to comment on that political sphere and exactly how you should think about that, but I just want to say to you, if, if you're here this morning and you have experienced abuse, assault, sexual abuse, rape of some kind, um, and you're wondering, will, will anyone believe me? And, and trust me, this issue is more widespread than we, than we know. More people have experienced it than we know. Uh, it's happened in more places than we'd like to admit. Churches, sadly, are not immune to this kind of thing. And so I just want you to know, if that's you here this morning, I want you to know from, from me, your pastor, that if you were to come to me with, uh, with what's happened to you and entrust me with that story, that, that I, would, I would believe you. So I just want you to know that I would, I would believe you. And I hope that we can have a culture here that, that listens well, that takes those things seriously and doesn't just brush them aside. Um, and so know that from me. If that's where you, where you are, something you've been through, I, I would uh, be more than happy to, to sit with you and, and, and listen and hear your story. And I would believe you. So with that being said, uh, let's pray again. Just recalibrate our hearts as we focus on the word. Lord, we do thank you for uh, your grace to us that we come in this morning with all kinds of thoughts and burdens and, and fears and um, anxieties and frustrations, Lord, from this week. We're all across the map on, on different issues, Lord, but we do share a love for you and a love for your word and a desire for your truth and your light to, to be known. And so, Lord, we just pray now that you would Help us to turn our attention to your word without distraction and without reservation, Lord. Help us to listen well and to, Jesus, see you for who you are. We love you and we thank you in your name. Amen. All right. Mark chapter 12. Here we go. Verse 28. We're continuing our walk through this fabulous book. And hey, if you... Uh, haven't been here before, then you should know we just kind of walk through a book at a time. So we've been in this series 
on the Gospel of Mark, just taking it section by section, little by little. So we're starting in verse 28 today, and we're not going to have the words on the screen, which means we need to be in the habit of opening up the Bible for ourselves. And so if you brought a Bible, awesome, you can do that. If you did not bring a Bible, there should be one on the seats in front of you. And uh, if you have a phone, then you can pull up the Bible app, perhaps, and kind of scroll along with us. Sound good? Mark 12, 28, we're going to start and jump right in. It says this. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. And he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? So no intro needed there, really. We're just getting right to the heart of the matter. This man approaches Jesus and he asks the question of all the commandments, of everything that the Bible tells you to do, and everything that it teaches, what's the most important? What's the most central, the closest to the heart of the matter that we can get? I think we all want to know that answer. See, the scene is set as one of these teachers of the law, the text tells us, or maybe your copy says a a scribe approaches Jesus. This was someone with the responsibility to teach the scriptures and to preserve the scriptures. Obviously, they would know their Bible quite well, and they've obviously been listening to Jesus. It says that he overheard how Jesus was interacting with this Sadducee in the verses before it. If you were here last week, you remember we looked at that whole dialogue. And so this scribe or this teacher of the law, here's how Jesus handles the question in the verses beforehand, and now comes with a question of his own. And this interaction is actually quite interesting because we'll see that it is rather friendly. It's friendly and kind of easy going. And if you've been here the past couple weeks, you've seen how time after time these, these groups of people are coming to try and trap Jesus They want to make him look silly, and he's kind of just out there, Jackie Chan, karate chopping him, calling him hypocrites, and telling him they don't know their Bibles, and they're wrong, and it's just been this really confrontational scene after confrontational scene, but here, it actually goes really well, and we see one of the only places in the whole Gospel of Mark when a religious leader actually agrees with Jesus, and they're actually on the same page. So that should cause us to take Notice, he comes with this good question, right? Of all the commands, and later tradition tells us that there were likely 613 commands that devout Jews sought to follow. Of all the commands, which is the most important? This was a conversation that rabbis would often have, trying to determine which of these commands was the weightiest or the heaviest or the most central to what it meant to follow the Lord. So Jesus weighs in. Verse 29, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So Jesus begins by actually quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, something that was known as the Shema. It's a fun word. You want to say it? Shema. It was a Jewish confession of faith that, again, is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It was uh, simply the word for hear. Shema 
means hear or listen. And as you see, that's the first word of this confession. Hear, O Israel. Devout Jews would recite this twice a day to remind themselves of who God is and their commitment to him. And I still remember back in the seminary, we learned this in Hebrew. We would actually start every class in seminary by singing this in Hebrew. Do you want to hear my singing? It would go something like this. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. No, 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 please, please. No, 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 no. no that, was, that wasn't an applause. Pause. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> you, you can see there's a reason I'm not over there with Darren week after week. Um, but beautiful words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It reminded people that their allegiance was to Yahweh, the one true God, the God of Israel. And it says the Lord is one. It's not a statement of internal unity necessarily or consistency. It's a statement of exclusivity. There is one God and only one God, and we worship him, the one sovereign, almighty creator and sustainer of the universe. He is our God. And the Shema goes on as Jesus quotes. Here's the command. Love the Lord. Love the Lord your God. It reminds us that God is a personal God. We're called to love him. This is the language of relationship. He's not just a force out there in the universe, some kind of cosmic good vibes that we're to align ourselves with. No, we serve a a personal God that is to be loved and served. This speaks of relationship. Love God, it tells us then how we are to love our God. You notice it says, first, with all of your heart. In Jewish thought, the heart was uh, understood a little bit differently than we understand it today. It's not just an organ that pumps blood. In Jewish thought, the heart was the center of the will. It was the place where our emotions, our intellect, our desires all met. And the place where our determination and our direction in life and our desires would come out. The whole person then, the center of who you are is to love God and determined to follow him. It goes on, love the Lord with all of your soul. It's a word that often we think that it means just the purely non-material part of us, but that's, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. If we look at the, New, uh, the Old Testament word that's used in the scriptures, the soul is more of the, the very essence of who you are, the complete part of you, if that makes sense. It's all of your personhood, your entire self, if you will, your entire energy, all that you are goes to the Lord. Continues, love the Lord with all of your mind. And this is actually a phrase that doesn't show up in Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you go and look, it just says heart, soul, strength. But here Jesus adds mind, which is interesting. It's possible that the life of the mind was implied or included in the Old Testament when they spoke of the heart uh, or of the strength, perhaps. But here, Jesus brings it out and makes it explicit. 
See, sometimes we think that as Christians, we need to be anti-intellectual, and maybe there's a sense that it'll check your mind at the door, and this is just the domain of faith and easy believism. But actually, as Christians, we are called to love God with our minds and think and reason and study and learn and use our intellect and our capacities to reason to honor God and worship Him and understand more about this world that He has made. There's actually a great book called Love God with All Your Mind by J.P. Moreland that talks about the life of the mind and how we today as Christians need to engage the life of the mind. We need to learn and study and grow and be people who love God in this way. Lastly, love the Lord with all of your strength. You can refer to your physical strength, your body, but again, also just all of your effort, all of your energy, all that you have is to go to Him. We could spend more time walking through the nuances of those words, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Much more could be said, but I think you see that the bigger picture, the big idea of it all is that everything you have is to go to God. You're to love Him with your entire self, your entire being, all of who you are, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, your emotions, your will, your intentions, your energy, it all is his. It's all his. It's not just part of you. We could add in a modern translation, we should love the Lord your God with, with your calendar and your wallet and your big decisions and your career path and your small decisions and what you do with your free time, and your relationships and your social media accounts. Your hours at work and your hours at home. Love the Lord with all of it. There's the command. Which, of course, means more than just emotion. Right? Love is not just a feeling. It does not just have to do with our affections. Love is action-oriented. It includes behaviors. I'll often tell this uh, to couples that are getting married as I'm doing a, a wedding. We'll talk about how love is more than just a feeling, right? Anyone who's married knows that there are going to be days where you don't feel very loving towards your spouse, do you? It happens. And yet, you're making a commitment with your vows to love them, whether or not you feel that way towards them. You're committed to them, to their good, to sacrificing for them, to blessing them, standing with them, and so it is with God. It's more than just a feeling and warm fuzzies. It's our whole lives committed to this God and to obey and follow Him. Which, of course, raises the question of application, and do we live this way? Do we love God with our entire life? Everything that we have, it's a high bar. You know, I think for, for some in, in other parts of the world or other times in history when it was quite costly in their cultural setting to follow Jesus, to follow Jesus and make that decision would mean you'd be ostracized from your family, kicked out of your home, maybe hunted down, maybe arrested, maybe killed. And so those believers would have to say, man, if I'm going to love God with everything that I have and follow this Jesus, then I'm going to have to sacrifice a lot. But here in the West, it's 
doesn't really work that way. That instant persecution doesn't come when we follow Jesus. And actually, for quite some time, it's been rather favorable to be a believer in society. That's not as much the case anymore, but for a long time, we've enjoyed that. And so the question of, man, am I, am I really giving everything that I have to God? So I thought about how to kind of help us grasp this concept. And so I came up with, with an illustration. It might be silly, but it just might work. So let's jump in, shall we? Imagine with me for a moment. Here's the thought exercise. Imagine with me that it's illegal to be a Christian in our society. Okay, it's illegal to become a Christian. But your neighbor becomes a little bit suspicious of you. They see you come into church, and they're not sure. Maybe they're one of those Christians they're thinking about you. So like, we got to figure this out. We might have to report them. And so they hire a private investigator, none other than Jack Bauer himself, to track you <laughs> and to follow you. And so this private investigator is watching your life. They're combing through your financial records and they're going through your emails and they've tapped your phones and so they're, they're hearing your conversations. They've tapped your home and so they're, they're hearing how you interact with your spouse and your kids. They're reading your text messages. They're, they're following you when you leave the home and watching where you go and what you do and how you carry yourself at work and how you talk to your coworkers, how you carry yourself. The question is, would they, would Jack, be able to find enough evidence to bring to the authorities and say, look, he or she, they're for sure a Christian. They love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Here's the evidence right here. I've seen how they pray. Uh, I've seen them engage in the word of God. I've seen them talk about this Jesus nonstop. At work and with their kids, I've seen them sacrifice and give of themselves for the good of other people. I've seen how they're following this Jesus. There's no doubt. Let's arrest them, throw them in jail. Or would they comb through your life, look at all those different areas of who you are and what you do, and would they conclude, nah, they're nothing to worry about. He, she, they come to church every once in a while, but beyond that, they're fine. They're not breaking the law. Do our lives reflect a commitment to the Lord? And hear me clearly, we are not saved by our works. We do not earn our salvation. We do not get right with the Lord by our good behavior. No, we're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done. But if we are saved and we have been reconciled to God through faith, then our lives should demonstrate that commitment. Shouldn't we be able to see something in the way that we live that points to who God is, that we love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Now, you may be here this morning, and you may be thinking, this guy's a little extreme. This pastor's a little unhinged. This Jesus is a little much. I mean, my dad always talks about life is about moderation. So everything in moderation. And so isn't this whole Jesus thing just getting a little carried away? Seems a little unhealthy. Or maybe you're here and this just sounds like a burden. It sounds just like dry, dead religion and obedience and get your act together and go to church and that's what you need to do with your life. And it doesn't sound like the good life. If that's where you're at this morning, 
I want you to hear, I want you to hopefully see that this command to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength is a good command. It's good. It's for our good that we obey and, and follow it. Because think about this. Have you ever wondered, have you ever noticed that everyone wants to be happy? We, we all want to find fulfillment, lasting satisfaction and joy in life, and yet it seems that true fulfillment in life is quite elusive, and it seems that so few actually find it. See, early church philosopher uh, and leader and teacher and author, Augustine, St. Augustine, back in the 300s and the 400s, he lived, and he was considering this question, looking around and seeing, again, the quest for happiness, and yet so few actually find it. He said, so in light of what we know from Scripture and human experience, how do we explain this? And he found that the issue in our hearts is that our loves are out of order. He said, our loves are disordered. And what he meant by that is as human beings, we love all kinds of things, don't we? We love friends, we love football, we love chicken wings, we love watching football with friends and chicken wings, we, we love our spouses, we love our work, perhaps, many of us do. We love our homes, we love tacos, any number of things. And he's saying what happens is we get the order of our loves twisted and, and disordered. And so we don't love the things we should love the most, the most. He put it this way. He said, we love too much what should be loved less, or we love too little what should be loved more. Saying So we should love God and work and family and all kinds of things, but, but we, we ruin ourselves. He said, we ruin ourselves when we get the order wrong. And so the main way that we do that is we take God out of first place, as it were, and we put something else there. And then instantly, everything else is off. And our loves are disordered because we don't love God first. See, he realized that the scriptures teach that we are made by God. We're made for God. We'll only find our ultimate joy and satisfaction in knowing him and worshiping him. We were designed that way to find our fulfillment in him and him alone, and then enjoy the rest of life as a gift from him. But what we've done is we've taken the gifts that he's given and made them ultimate things and worshiped and pursued them rather than him. So the scripture shows that God alone is worthy of our worship. God alone is worthy of our devotion. He's the glorious creator, sovereign, almighty God, giver of life. Nothing else can bear the weight of being the focus of the human heart. See, what we've done is we've all turned from God and we've tried to satisfy ourselves, fulfill our hearts with other things. We try and put something else above God, something else in first place. But what happens when we do that is that we think we'll find life by pursuing those things. But it brings Havoc and destruction upon our lives and ourselves and our relationships. And the biblical word for this is idolatry. We worship other things. And so picture with me for a second. If you love your spouse or you love your kids more than you love God, spouse or kids or family, that's number one. Then all of a sudden your significance, your worth, your identity is wrapped up in your 
kid and how they succeed or don't succeed. And you're going to require that they love you in a way that they probably can't love you. Your identity is going to be wrapped up with them. So they likely will be crushed by the weight of your expectations because they're the center of your world. And they can't bear that weight. Your spouse can't bear that weight. Maybe you put work in first place. It's not family, but it's work. If that's the case, then what will happen is you'll sacrifice your own health. You'll sacrifice the health of your family as you pursue success and achievement and a bigger paycheck. Or maybe you say, no, it's not family, it's not work, but I'm just going to put myself number one. My desires, my comforts, I'm going to go and pursue all the best experiences that life has to offer. And you might have some fun. You might enjoy yourself for a while, but after a while, your, your soul will begin to shrivel. You'll lose the capacity to truly love deeply and be loved because you've lived a, a self-serving life. See, when we don't love God first, inevitably, inevitably we'll put something else in his place and then we will crush it with our expectations or we'll bring devastation and unhealthy dynamics into our family. But if we love God first and obey this command, then we're able to enjoy everything else in its proper place. We can love our family, our spouse, and our kids, not as the center of our identity, or that we need them in order to be fulfilled, but they are a good gift from God and we can love and serve them sacrificially. We can see our work as a good gift from God, as meaningful and fulfilling, not as the center of our identity, but as something that God has called us to. We can enjoy our, our hobbies and our passions, not as the defining mark of our life, but as a good gift from God that we can enjoy. So you see, if we put God first and get our loves in order, it allows us to truly then enjoy life how God intended it to be. But we have to start here. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus doesn't stop there, does he? Now, verse 31. The second is this. He continues. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Isn't it interesting in the text that the scribe or the teacher of the law asks him for the greatest commandment and Jesus gives him two? I'm going to give you two. Jesus, which command is the most important? Well, one and two. He, he connects them. Connects them, saying that you cannot faithfully love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength if you do not love your neighbor as yourself. And so our lives as believers are not just to be marked by uh, high, lofty praise and talk about God, but they're to be filled with demonstrations of love for our neighbor. See, a loveless Christian is an oxymoron. As D.A. Carson, the scholar and author, writes, no amount of good works, no amount of wisdom, no amount of discernment in matters of church discipline, no patient endurance and hardship, hatred of sin or disciplined doctrine, none of that can ever make up for lovelessness. Doesn't that sound strangely like the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13? Right, he goes on, if I have this gift or this ability or this achievement but have not love, I'm nothing. Nothing. So here again, love for neighbor. It's not marked just by feelings. 
right? It's not just the warm fuzzies and affections, as we talked about. It's marked by action, by behavior towards other people, for other people. And if you look back at Leviticus 19, Jesus is quoting from Leviticus 19, verse 8. talks about love your neighbor as yourself. In the context there, and you go back and read it, you'll see that the surrounding verses are talking about how you love your neighbor. And he says things like not uh, harvesting the edges of your field so that the poor will have food to eat. It says things like not stealing from your neighbor, not lying to your neighbor, doing justice in the world. That's what it looks like to love your neighbor. So don't just talk about it. Don't just feel it. Actually live in such a way that you're blessing other people, you're sacrificing, giving of yourself for the good of other people. And this might be in big ways. What about families that are so convinced that they need to love others, that they adopt kids or they foster kids in their home, kids that otherwise wouldn't have a home? That's a costly way to love. But sometimes it's in, in smaller steps, smaller everyday things like just readjusting your schedule to show up when a friend is in need. Re rearranging your schedule so you can be present when someone has lost a loved one. Giving a phone call, letting someone know that you're there, that you're helping them, that you're thinking of them. Could be big, could be small. And uh, this point's really been challenging me lately, if I, if I can be honest, because um, I have a lot to grow in, in this way. I look at my own life and I wonder, Lord, am I really loving my neighbor as myself? Think about how I love myself and care for myself and protect myself and do things for me. Am I loving my neighbor in that same way? Am I really giving of myself for the good of other people? I mean, it's not hard to be generally kind to people. And I think that there's a lot of nice people out there in the world. It doesn't take Jesus to just be a nice person and smile at someone. So I wonder, I look at my own life and I think, does the way I love people, does the way... Do the ways I love people, does it really look any different than the way a non-Christian loves their family or their neighbors? Because it should, right? If we have Christ in us and the power of the Holy Spirit, and we've been loved by God in such a way, shouldn't that move us to, to radically love and sacrifice for the good of other people? And so if, if the way I love my family and, and love my neighbors, if it looks the same as it does for a non-Christian, then isn't, isn't something missing? I mean, you read the New Testament, it just makes it seem like we're going to be known by our love. Doesn't Jesus say that about his church? My church will be known, my people will be known, not by the, the great band or the engaging speaker, but by how my people love one another. That's going to be the mark. Man, does, does my life really show a sacrificial willingness to give of myself and love people in a way that makes them scratch their heads? It makes them say, I don't, I don't get you. <laughs> I don't understand why you would live in such a way and give so much for other people. Don't get me wrong. I, I think our church is a, a, a loving church. One of the things we hear regularly is people talk about how, uh, how, how warm of a welcome they receive when people come to FBC, and I love that. And I look around at some of you. I, just, I know some of the ways that you've loved people. I know some of the stories, some of the ways you've sacrificed, and I love those stories I love, just looking at and being reminded of how you lived this out. So some of us are doing great. Some of us can, can really grow in this area, though. And I know I'm one of them. 
I'm really going out of my way to love my neighbor and so fulfill this command. So Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor. That's the heart of it all. Now, back in Mark 12, you see he continues in verse 32. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You're right in saying that God is one and there's no other but him. To love him with all your heart and all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Again, surprisingly friendly, right? The guy listens to Jesus and is like, huh, I'm impressed. Good job, Jesus. You answered that well. There's only one God, so love him and love your neighbor as yourself. Sounds great. But then notice the detail that he adds. What does he say? He says, this is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Coming from a teacher of the law, a scribe, one of the religious elite in Judaism, this is a big statement. Because offerings and the sacrificial system were so important to the life of a Jew. To worship, to being right with God, was so central to their life with the Lord. And so here he's saying that these commands to love God and neighbor is more important than the sacrificial system. More important than the offerings. That's, that's bold. That's big. It's getting at the reality that we can go to church and do religious stuff and jump through the hoops and keep the offerings and sacrifices going as it were. We can do all that without really loving God. Isn't it possible to, to just follow kind of dead religion? Keep the rules, maybe pray a bit, maybe go to a small group. Maybe give a little bit to your neighbor when they're in need, but not necessarily because we love God. Because we want to maybe look a certain way, want to jump through the hoops so that if we keep the rules and we play the game, then you know what? God's going to owe us. He'll owe us a good life because look, God, we, we kept the rules. We played your game. So, so where's my nice life? You see, that's not done out of a love for God. It's just jumping through the hoops. The question for us is, do we truly love God? Do we want God or the stuff that he gives? God's saying, I don't just want the offerings and sacrifices. I just don't want the religious hoops. I want your heart. Jesus sees how the man responds, verse 34. When Jesus saw that he had answered, he had answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. I love that. After, it took them a while, but eventually they're like, this Jesus knows how to answer questions. So we're going to stop asking him. It's a little scary, but he says, you aren't far from the kingdom. This particular scribe or teacher of the law, he might not have put his faith in Christ as the king and as the Messiah just yet. But he's saying, you're close. You're close. You get the heart of what I'm trying to do. Now this passage summarizes the walk of a Christian, right? Love God and love others. Some of us maybe want to live this out, but we don't always know how. Maybe we try to live this out, but it doesn't always go so well. wonder how can we do this? How can we obey this? It seems like a pretty high bar. It starts, my friends, with knowing how you have been loved. It starts with remembering the gospel. The gospel is not just a message about what you have to go and do. The gospel is a message 
of what God has done for you. So if we remember the gospel and we look to Jesus and see him not just as an example, as a wise teacher, as a good person to maybe model our life after. He is all those things, but he, of course, is more than that. He's a savior who's rescued us from our sins. See, the Bible tells us that we were dead in our sins, running away from God, wanting nothing to do with him. We're rebels. And because of that, we deserve, what, judgment, wrath, condemnation, separation from God. That's our our future that we had coming. And yet, God, in his grace, in his love, and in his mercy, sent his son, Jesus. And Jesus came, and he lived, and he died in our place, and he bore our sins, and he took the judgment that we deserved. He died so that we could live. So you see the love of God on display in the cross, that he would die for us, that he would sacrifice for us to bring us, what, forgiveness of sins, new life, the Holy Spirit in us, a relationship with God, hope of life forever with him and his good world. The scriptures tell us this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And so the solution to loving God and loving others is not just try harder. It's not just be better. It's not just work at it, but it's look at Jesus and see how he has loved you. Look at Jesus. See how God has loved you, how God gave himself for you, that you might know him, that you might be forgiven, that you might have new life, that you might be rescued so that in the coming ages he would show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. What a gift. If you're here this morning and you haven't made that decision to trust Christ, I encourage you to put your faith in him today to respond in faith to this offer of salvation that he has graciously given to all of us. If you're here this morning, you're new, and you want to pray that prayer, I would love to lead you and help you know how to walk with Jesus. I would love to talk with you. If you're here with someone, I'm sure that they would love to talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus and what that looks like in their life. They'd love to help you. But 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. And so when we grasp the love of God and what he's done for us, it transforms our hearts. And it allows us then to love God and enables us to love others and thus obey what Jesus has called us to do. Would you pray with me? Well, God, we thank you for your word. Jesus, thank you for these words that you spoke to this man so many years ago. It really gets at the heart of the matter and what you want from us. You want us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. May we be people who obey and who follow you with joy and worship you with everything that we have, no matter how costly. And you've also called us, Jesus, to love our neighbor as ourself. And elsewhere, you've reminded us how broad the definition of neighbor is. So Lord, help us to be people of love and grace towards those who are like us and those who are different from us, towards those who think and look the way we do and those who think and look totally different than we do. Lord, help us to be agents of your love. And ultimately, we thank you, Jesus, for dying for us, 
for how you have loved us. We praise you and worship you. In your name, amen.